Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to the third week of Advent. Advent. It's awesome to be here. Um, if you guys are like me and didn't grow up in a like historical, traditional church, you might be like unfamiliar with the idea of Advent or the themes of Advent. Um, but Advent is a word that means the arrival or approaching. And this time before Christmas is where we focus on our growing anticipation for the Advent or coming of Jesus. We're both looking back to celebrate the Advent of Jesus on Christmas so long ago, while also looking forward to build up our hope while we wait for his second advent, right? When he comes back to set everything right. We do this by joining God's family all around the world as uh, they meditate in these weeks of advent on key themes. And so each week we've been talking about one of the themes of advent and we've been lighting the candles for them. It goes from down to up, right? I actually don't remember. See, not traditional, I don't know. It goes from bottom to top. Oh, you don't know either? All right, good. <laughs> so the first week, we lit the candle of hope, and we reflected on how our hope is not a vague, shapeless optimism, right? Our hope is an anchor for our souls because our hope is guaranteed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the beautiful destiny that he is bringing us to. In the second week, we lit the candle of peace and reflected on how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Oh, yeah, that's joy. <laughs> no joy today, guys. This is peace. Peace. On the second week, we lit the candle of peace. And not peace that just means an absence of conflict, but a peace that means shalom, wholeness, rightness, like lighting the right candle for Advent, right? Like the wholeness of the Lord brings wholeness in every aspect of our lives, not just an absence of fighting conflict. And this week, we light the candle of joy. <laughs> um, so for most of us, Thinking of joy around Christmas time makes sense, right? After all, in Luke chapter 2, when the angel appears to tell the shepherds about Jesus' birth, he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, right? Um, in the malls, in the Walmarts, and the Christmas specials on TV, you'll hear about the joy of Christmas and hear carolers singing joy to the world, right? So it's natural to think of joy and Christmas. They go together like peanut butter and jelly, right? But what is joy? What are we actually talking about? What do we mean when we talk about joy? Um, if you look up the, the dictionary definitions, a bunch of dictionaries like the Merriam-Webster Dictionary or the o New Oxford Dictionary will tell you that joy is a feeling of great happiness and pleasure. And that's it. But that doesn't, and so that doesn't quite cover what the writers of the Bible meant when they would speak to us about joy. Um, it doesn't doesn't fully cover all the spectrum of what God means by our joy. There's an organization called The Bible Project um, that has put out a great series of uh, videos on all the different themes of Advent, and they've been giving the biblical definitions for each 
one of these themes. And so today we're going to watch the video for joy and see what they say about biblical joy. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy in happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness, and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. So naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them to freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later, biblical poets looked back on this story, and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads, happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following you, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen with joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's Spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust 
Jesus, that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So good, right? Um, Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you give us a joy that goes beyond our circumstances, Lord. You give us a joy that is so much deeper than what we see around us. Um, And it's not, again, it's not just pasting on a smile, but it is being transformed by the hope of you and the hope of what you've done for us, God. Pray that you would um, guide us into your heart this morning, Lord. Pray that we would be awakened to see you and to know you and to be transformed by you, God, not just for this morning, but for you know, for all time, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So before I was preparing for the sermon, I would have told you that joy is great, right? Joy feels good. It feels good to laugh. I love to take things easy. I, I enjoy a lot of things, um, and that's all wonderful. But I would not have told you that joy was essential or necessary, right? I would have compared joy in the Christian life to chocolate icing on a brownie. Now, I love thick, fudgy, decadent, gooey brownies, right? They're always a good time. But have you ever added chocolate frosting on top of your brownie? Wow, it takes it to the next level. It is the next level of ecstasy. I mean, you're getting into like heavenly feast, wedding supper of the lamb type of uh, joys when you have a brownie with icing on top of it. But even without the icing, like a brownie is still great. Um, the, The icing is great, but it's not necessary. And I thought the same thing about joy. Because the truth is that we live in a broken, cursed world, right? Sad things happen, bad things happen, and often it's just hard to hold on to joy. Sometimes it can even feel like there's nothing to be joyful about. And on top of that, I also know people who have the kinds of temperaments that just make it more difficult for them to have or keep or find joy. Um, And we all go through seasons where joy doesn't seem to be on the menu, right? Where it's like harder and we're struggling more and it doesn't seem as like readily available. Um, But that's, and that's fine. You know, we can soldier on. We still love Jesus. We still have the brownie, but not the icing. And a brownie without icing is still amazing, right? But what I've actually been discovering like the past couple of weeks as I was preparing this sermon is that for followers of Jesus, joy is much more important than the good vibes you get on the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, Not having joy is much less like not having icing on your brownie and much more like the time when I tried to bake a cake for my wife, Emma, and I used a box mix that had three ingredients and I missed one. I (laughs) I had the eggs, I had, the, I had the, the box, and I stirred it up, and I tossed it in the oven, and I tried to make a cake out of it. It, it looked kind of like a cake. Um, it was still edible, but it wasn't what it was, the cake was meant to be, right? It was dry. It was cracked. It was not great. Um, and if you are following Jesus, joy is an essential ingredient for your life because joy is an essential ingredient of God. Joy is a major theme throughout all the Bible, from beginning to the end. So you know how in Genesis 1, God keeps creating things and saying, oh, that's good, you know, trees, good, flowers, good, 
grass, animals, good. Well, Proverbs 8 gives us kind of a more colorful, zoomed-in description of how the creation, uh, how creation was happening, and it does it from the perspective of a wisdom personified. And during this, wisdom describes God establishing the clouds and marking the boundaries of the oceans and setting up the mountains, and wisdom talks about being filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in God's presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So when creation was happening, they were having a full-on party. It wasn't like, this is good. It was like, this is great! You know, like they were celebrating. There was a lot of dancing and joy and, and all that, right? And when Jesus came on Christmas, again, another party. The angels filled the heavens and the earth with songs of joy. And did you catch that part in the Bible Project video where they reference Psalm 104, where it says that God gives wine on earth to gladden the hearts of men? Well, the very first miracle Jesus ever performed the miracle that like, was kind of establishing his thesis statement for what is this Savior going to be about? What is he going to bring to the world? The first miracle he performs for his disciples, in front of his disciples is to turn water into the best wine ever, 150 gallons of it, to take a wedding feast to the next level of celebration. Um, and when Jesus was baptized, when he was beginning his earthly ministry, the father beamed on his son in pride and joy in saying that he was well pleased in him. And if you think about why did Jesus die on the cross, like how was he able to do it? Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and it scorned its shame. So it was the joy that led him to and through the cross. Jesus says in Luke 15 that when you, when each of you came to repent, decided to turn away from your sin and stop running from the loving arms of Jesus, all of heaven rejoiced and threw a party. All of the angels, all of the, all of the Trinity, all of the Godhead, everyone was celebrating over you. And in Matthew 25, 21, Jesus says through a parable that the reward for living your life for him is that he's going to come and tell you to enter into the joy of your master. So from the very beginning of creation, all the way through to the end, when we finally are in Jesus's loving arms forever, it's all joy. So it makes sense why Paul writes in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As the author C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And God is not just serious about his own joy. He is seriously committed to our joy, too. Like, it's an easy mistake to see all the limits and rules that God gives as, like, a buzzkill. Like, the main theme of Christianity is, know this, know that, no fun. Um, but the reality is that God is deeply invested in our, in our joy, and he's so invested that he doesn't want us to waste our lives in the destructive illusions that we convince ourselves will bring joy. In John 15, 9 through 11, Speaking to his disciples before he went to the cross, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep in my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things, all these commandments, everything that I have said, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So every command that God gives, 
everything that we are and are not supposed to do are so that Jesus' joy would be in us and our joy would be full. Every thou shalt and thou shalt not are because God knows that there is a much, much deeper joy to be had than what we would have left to our own devices. C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. Our problem is is that we are far too easily pleased. So why is God so serious about our joy? Um, There are a number of reasons. One is that we were put on earth to give glory to God. In Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made us so that we could showcase how wonderful, amazing, powerful, and beautiful he is. Now, for human, that would be selfish and vain, right? It sounds like, oh, okay. If I invited you to my house, so that you could see how awesome I was. You'd be like, okay. Right? It would be actually a, a showcase, showcase, showcase of, of my weakness, because the truth is actually not great. There's, I'm not much to, to brag about. Um, but God is infinitely beautiful, immeasurably powerful, unimaginably awesome, and unfathomably amazing. God doesn't need or seek your praise like some insecure little rich kid trying to be popular, right? Make no mistake, he is worthy of far more glory and honor than you could ever give him. Um, But he created us for his glory, and that benefits us. It's for our sake. We know that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, and, Je- and Jesus reveals in John 17, 3, that eternal life, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to have this full, abundant life, we need to know God. We need to seek and savor him. We need to, like, abide in that richness. Um, knowing God and having full, abundant, joyful life is what Jesus meant in John 10, 10, where he said that he came so that we may have life and have it to the full. God loves us, and true love is doing what is best for the other person at all costs. And God knows that what is best for us, the best thing for each of us, is to be completely enraptured with his glory, with knowing and displaying how amazing, how wonderful, how beautiful, how kind and wise and powerful God is. So God's zeal for his glory is directly connected with his zeal for us to have joyful, abundant life. As pastor and theologian John Piper puts it, God is most, satisfied, or most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So one of the reasons why God is serious about our joy is because God is serious about his glory. Another reason God seriously wants us to have joy is that he knows that we need it. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10, we learn that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God knows that there are many, many battles that we will fight in this broken world, and the joy of the Lord is the weapon that we use to defend ourselves and to cut back the darkness. 
When we can pray Psalm 40, verse 8, and say, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are in my heart, that gives us strength to persevere in doing God's will and bringing forth God's kingdom. The joy of the Lord is the anchor that holds us when the storms of life and the attacks of the enemy try to batter us down. That is why when he was thrown in prison, Paul wrote Philippians 3.1 saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Rejoicing in the Lord puts up a shield that we most certainly need because Satan, our enemy, is passionate about destroying, distorting, and or diluting our joy. In that same passage in John 10.10, where Jesus says that he came that we can have life to the full, he also says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan doesn't want you to have joy. He is vehemently opposed to it. He knows that the joy of the Lord is your strength and that you will be unstoppable if you're strong. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, lions have a great reputation as being fierce, strong beasts, right? The king of all the animals, right? And so when we say here it's Satan's lion, it sounds like, oh, he's so terrifying and intimidating. But the way that lions hunt is that they find the weak, sickly animals. They don't want to go after a full-blown, full-grown, healthy like wildebeest. They want to go after the sickly one that's separated from the herd because they know that if they go against a healthy animal, it's just as likely that the lion's going to get taken down as the, as the wildebeest. So they find a sickly one, they draw it out, and they, they attack that. And in the same way that, lions, that a lion doesn't want to go after a, a, a healthy, strong wildebeest, Satan does not want to go after a healthy you. He knows that he will be certainly thwarted by a Christian strengthened by the joy of the Lord. If he can't stomp out your joy completely, he wants you to have a weak, fleeting, trifling kind of joy, a joy that can be wrecked and will end up wrecking you. He wants to plug you into the hype machine of the world systems, getting stuck on joys that were only ever to be signposts towards the true joy. He knows that if he can get you to have your greatest joy in your social status or your looks or your money, your family or your job, your reputation or anything other than God, then your joy won't last and your joy won't be and you won't be a threat to him. And in fact, having anything, having your ultimate joy in anything other than God can be a weapon in his arsenal that he uses against you. Right? Because what kinds of things steal our joy? What makes us have lack of joy in our lives? Stress and anxiety do. Fear takes away our joy. And why is that? Why do we have those things? We fear and have stress and anxiety because there's something that we've put our hope in to bring us joy, but we don't know if we'll get it. Right? We know that, that, that this joy is fleeting and elusive, and that stresses us out. So we're not able to fully enjoy the things. Or we're not able to have joy in what we have because we're terrified that it's going to be taken away. Ouch, sorry about that. Um, sometimes we lack joy because we lack gratitude. We don't pause and take in all the blessings that God has given us. We don't stop to drink in the multiple myriads of all the little and big joys that God brings us to our lives. And we don't let those joys turn our hearts to him. We take them for granted and we don't, or we don't notice them at all 
And that robs us of the joys that we can have in God's gifts that point us to look at and give thanks to and have joy in God. Or maybe we don't have the secure, lasting, enduring joy of the Lord because we are too busy wishing for more. Our greed and covetousness has us constantly on the search for that next joy hit, that next dopamine hit. But also sometimes we lack joy because of our suffering, right? Because life on this side of heaven is full of deep, difficult pain. It's full of loss and longing. The Bible says that all of creation groans with longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption and brokenness. So of course we feel that too. And Satan wants to use that suffering, that real, honest, legitimate suffering to take away the joy that you're supposed to have in the Lord by focusing on your pain instead of God's promises. He wants you hyper-focused on that immediate or short, or on whatever immediate or short-term future goals and joys are being denied you so that you can't see or hope for what greater joys God is leading you towards. We often think that the solution to getting joy is to change our circumstances. We blame our joylessness on the difficult, depressing circumstances we are in. We think things like, if that hadn't happened, um, if this could ju- if, or if this thing could just change, then I would finally have joy. And that's how Satan wants us to think. He wants us constantly running ourselves ragged, trying to grab onto the shifting sands of earthly joy. But the solid, enduring, anchoring, rejuvenating joy of the Lord does not grow out from our ever-changing circumstances, but from our hope and confidence in our never-changing God. Joy is our inevitable destiny. It's the birthright of every Christian, of every person who belongs to and is filled with the God of all joy. However, because of our earthly limitations, because of the sin we experience in this world, because of Satan's constant efforts to steal what is rightfully ours, joy is something that we often have to fight for. To quote Henry Nouwen, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, that's one of Eben's favorite guys, and we disagree on how awesome he is, but I'm quoting him, because <clears throat> this is a good quote. Uh, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. That's good now. (laughs) So how do we choose joy, though? How, How do we grow in joy? Well, firstly, we choose joy by rejoicing. Now, that sounds kind of obvious. Like, what is that? What are you talking about? Um, To rejoice is not an optional thing for followers of Jesus. It's a command that's given to us. It's given multiple times throughout the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. And in Philippians 4.4, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. So to rejoice in something is to purpose yourself to find delight in it through your mind, actions, and emotions. We rejoice in something by consciously putting our whole heart into it. To rejoice in the fall is to get yourself hyped up for pumpkin spice lattes and sweaters and bonfires and football, right? 
Um, to rejoice in Christmas is to listen to Christmas music and watch Christmas movies and hang up Christmas decorations and buy Christmas gifts and to think about all the most wonderful things about the most wonderful time of the year, right? So we know how to rejoice in things. Um, to rejoice in the Lord is to purposefully fix your thoughts on him in order to drink in and savor his beauty, his power, his majesty, his wisdom, and all of his other glorious attributes. It means mentally rehearsing all of the good things you love about Jesus until your heart and your spirit are warmed and alive to the joy he brings you just by being who he is. To quote Robert Murray Machane, a Scottish pastor, he says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. So to rejoice in the Lord means choosing to engage in worship, to, in reading his word, in spending time with him in prayer, in meditation, in silence. To rejoice in the Lord means to share your joy with others, means discussing and proclaiming how great God is. To rejoice in the Lord means focusing and trusting his promises even when life hurts, because we know that we serve a loving God who has repeatedly said he is doing everything for our good so that we can have abundant life, so that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. That's why James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's why Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, right, this is the mental rehearsing part, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That doesn't mean that we pretend like our sufferings don't hurt. It doesn't mean that we slap on a smile and act like we're okay. But it does mean that we ask God to go, for the grace to go deeper than the sufferings that we see. It means that we can simultaneously feel the grief, feel the pain, feel the anger and the sadness, but also hold on to the trust and conviction that the God who suffered so much for our joy and life would not let something happen to us unless it was ultimately leading us to more joy in life no matter how terrible the current circumstances are. And we can know how to do this from Jesus himself, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he was crucified, knowing that he was about to literally go through the entirety of hell for us, Jesus begged the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So that was Jesus' will, his desire. His suffering was, I don't want to do this. But at the same time, he also had a deeper will, that was not my will, Father, but yours be done. 
He was able to hold both of those things at the same time um, to say, I don't want to do this. This is hard. He was sweating blood, right? And the same time saying, I know that there's a deeper joy you're leading me to, and I am choosing to trust you and to have joy in you, Father. So at times, we too will not feel like rejoicing in the Lord. We won't feel like counting our suffering as joy. And that's when we have to exert that deeper will, that deeper joy that doesn't look like laughter and smiling. Ha ah. ha um, But it's the deep commitment that God is still good and trustworthy and beautiful and worth it. And God is still for our joy. And that, but that's not all to say that we get joy, we make joy happen by our efforts, by gritting our teeth and focusing our will and channeling all our strength. On the contrary, the Bible teaches us that joy is not something that we can do on our own. Um, Galatians 5.22 lists joy as one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And the fruits of the Spirit don't come through our effort. They come by being connected to Jesus. Like Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So this joy is produced in us through God himself as we walk in step with the Spirit and are transformed into his likeness. John Piper defines joy as a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his work. So in our pursuit of greater joy, we must always remember that the joy of the Lord is also the joy from the Lord. We get our ability to have this joy from drawing near to him, from counting on him to make this joy happen in our lives. We don't say, okay, I'm going to just try to have joy in this. I'm going to desperately do it. I can do this. We desperately throw our hope on God, like, God, I don't have joy, and I need it. And we go to him again and again, and we know that God's not going to turn us away, right? Jesus says that if us human evil fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, how will the Father not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How will he not give us his joy? Um, and he will make that joy happen in our lives, right? If you love and follow Jesus, joy is inevitable. That's the hope we can hold on to. Um, Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you are in God's presence. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Did they say 2 Corinthians? Okay, it's 1 Corinthians and that God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you, right? God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So you are in God's presence, and in God's presence is fullness of joy. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. I am with you always. So that means you are in God's presence, and in God's presence is fullness of joy. Hebrews 13, 5 says that God will never leave you and never forsake you. He'll never walk away, and he'll never send you away. That means that whatever else is happening in your life, whatever you have done or haven't done, God is with you right now, and in his presence is fullness of joy. God is always with us. It's kind of like radio waves, right? Right now, at this very moment, music is playing. Radio waves are banging up against your head, but we're just not tuned into it. Like our antenna's not up, we can't, we can't perceive it. Um, but when you do tune in, when you do have the equipment, when you put yourself in the presence 
of the things that let you channel that, those radio frequencies, you get the music. You get the symphony. You get the orchestras. You get whatever. Because we are on this side of eternity, we are not always tuned in to the reality of God's presence. But we can tune in by rejoicing in the Lord, by letting every earthly joy remind us that it is only a hint of a shadow of the joy to come, and by letting every pain remind us of the promise of the joy to come. When every sad thing will come untrue, and when all things will be made new, when we will be able to fully experience the reality of the advent of the God of all joy. Right? So, with all this, what do we do with this? We're, gonna wrap, we're wrapping things up now. Um, like what, how do we take this and move forward? I was praying, thinking about, like, what is the application for this? Like, this is all great. What do we do? Um, one of the things that came to my mind is that, like, take this time, take this week, take this season, take your life, and consciously remember to rejoice in the Lord. It's easy for me to get lost in, I like this movie, I like these friends, I had a good time. It's a work of the Spirit for me to say, thank you, Jesus, for that. To see Jesus in that, right? Like, if I go to see a movie, and it's like a Marvel superhero movie, and things are exploding, and I'm like, wow, that was so cool! Like, the reason why I can enjoy that is because of the joy of the Lord. It's a hint, an echo of the joy that God is bringing us to, right? Every single joy that we have in this life is just a signpost pointing us to the true joy. When, we, when you're lost in the woods, I, I read this somewhere, but I forgot to quote, quote it, so I don't know who said it. When you are on your way somewhere and you're lost in the woods, the signpost is really exciting. You're like, oh my gosh, there's a sign. But when you get on the road and you know where you're going and you can see the destination, like you don't care about the signpost. You're not like, oh, there's another sign. Like you know where you're going. In the same way, don't let the earthly joys absorb your minds and your thoughts and get you focused on those instead of the joy of the Lord. Um, and then, and the same thing with bad situations, right? When you're in a bad situation, when something's not happening, usually we are aware of what would bring us joy in the situation. Usually it's not this, Right? Like when a loved one dies, when you lose a job, when you're struggling with a coworker, you know, work or something like that, you're like, if this was gone, if this was different, I would have joy. And that longing that you have is a longing for heaven, is a longing for God, when we would be in his presence and he will make all sad things untrue and wipe away every tear from our eyes. So let those things draw you into God's presence. Like, God, this hurts, but I know you're bringing me deeper. I know you're bringing me closer to yourself and you're teaching me things about you through this. And I'm not getting that lesson right now and I don't want to get that lesson right now, but I need your help. Bring me your joy. And we know that God will bring you your joy because he's serious about it. Um, and I, I am aware that there's so much more to be said about joy. And I am also like, it was hard to like, write this sermon because I, I know that there are people going through a lot of very difficult circumstances. And I know that the holiday can be extremely difficult in ways that I can't even fathom. <clears throat> and so I don't want to come up here and make it sound like it's easy, like, ah, just rejoice in the Lord. Like, I understand, right? God does know what you're going through. And this is still his message for you. Like, whatever pain you are in, he is still saying, I am with you in this. I am for you in this. Like, you can still have your pain and rejoice in me because you know that I'm going to bring you through this. And I, you know that I'm bringing you to greater joy.